are already in debt, you need to pay bills and everything, you need to get freaking money to survive, to pay your ramen noodles. And on the other side, basically, you can only do this with wooden small prototypes. After weeks, you're tired as hell, you're hungry because you, have, you, you don't have enough money to eat, basically. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders, a podcast that usually showcases the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. But today, we're traveling to Germany to talk to Patrick Nathan, co-founder of the German aviation company Lilium. The company has won numerous awards and raised hundreds of millions of dollars in investment for an idea that at first seemed laughably unimaginable, flying taxis. While this may seem more in line with the fantasies told to World War II vets and the imaginary world envisioned on the Jetsons, Patrick and his team have proved that these innovations are closer than you'd think. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the most famous name in aerospace, Elon Musk, tweeted that Lilium had a great design. You may be thinking that those are some pretty ego-boosting accomplishments. Well, think again. Patrick is one of the most humble, down-to-earth guys we've ever had on the show. But don't let his mild-mannered demeanor fool you. He's got a rebellious streak, and it all started from his humble beginnings growing up in Dusseldorf, Germany. I grew up in the classic German working-class family kind of circumstances and basically lived the, I'd say, the classic boring life. I was always like a little bit geeky, I'd say, which made me also to focus more around video games and uh, technology at the very beginning of my life. As a young German lad playing video games in his rigid family home, he was but a speck in the vast expanse of the universe. A speck without purpose, living a boring life in a boring city. He grew up in Dusseldorf, Berlin's less cool, less funky, more gothic and gloomy little cousin. A place where the lines for the hottest clubs are much shorter. Searching for an outlet, Patrick brought some kinetic energy to his boring life by cranking up the stereo to some heavily distorted guitar licks. was falling in love with heavy metal and uh, this basically brought me into an environment which is uh, like also more a magnet for travels, I would say. Coming into heavy metal was actually uh, something, uh, I wouldn't say a mild shock, it was a big shock for my family uh, because um, my my family, especially my parents, grew up uh, normally what you use uh, the classic, uh, classic German kind of music. And uh, I actually got uh, into it because I was a um, um, troubled student and uh, I had a good friend of mine started to listen uh, to this um, heavy guitars and this um, and bass drums and everything. And this was at this time um, uh, Metallica. And uh, then it basically happened that I got uh, totally in love with this. And going and listening to heavy metal is, of course, also connected to um, drinking beer. And there was this time we found it extremely funny to jump over parking cars in the middle of the night. Um, until the point I actually ended up in the roof of a Porsche Cabriolet. 
my uh, father had to pick me up basically then uh, from the police station. I basically had to explain him uh, what has happened. And basically then him uh, picking me up basically from the police station because I thought it would be a great idea to jump into parking cars while being drunk is I think um, pretty much one of the top experiences I had during this time. He really stuck it to the order of German society by jumping on a Porsche, his country's crown jewel of automaking. What better way to be heavy metal than to get into some troublemaking and defy your parents? In the Nathan family playlist, you had Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, and the Black Album by Metallica. Let's just say that one of the above doesn't fit. And that's exactly why Patrick took to the heavy metal lifestyle. Eventually, he would outgrow his hooligan phase, turning his drive to break the mold into more productive endeavors. In union with this kind of like rebellious nature you had, you were also really inspired by the sciences. When did you feel that you started to really delve into the sciences and how did you explore that? It's kicked off very early with a short story of time by Stephen Hawking. According to Einstein's general theory of relativity, space and time together... Which basically does a major fascination for astrophysics, astronomy uh, as a whole, which still is a huge passion for me, like massive. From the age of 15, I would say, I really said like, oh, okay, I want to go into physics because this is my thing. The fascination, this ongoing interest was coming from grasping something that cannot be grasped. This complete vastness in this, um, actually how big the universe is and understanding how insignificant this blue marble uh, is we are living on. This is still my thinking. This is an incredible coincidence that um, we are being created, that we can create something like, or that there is something like consciousness about these kind of things. When you describe the the blue marble and the vastness of the universe, my instinct would be like, let me buy a telescope, right? Like, did you have any instincts like that where it's like, let me let me explore this in this specific way on my own? It was always books because I wasn't able to, um, and even the most done instruments are pretty expensive, um, but um, it is uh, currently in my bucket list to get one. Patrick was too young and too broke to delve into the practical applications of physics. But he didn't let that stifle his curiosity as he burned through book after book. Here, I'd like to share one of the more famous passages from Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes the universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science, of constructing a mathematical model, cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? Science is all about rules, formulas, objectivity, and undeniable truths, right? To Hawking, The beauty of science is getting down to what breathes fire into all the cut and dry textbook stuff that lulled you to sleep in physics class. Reading this book, Patrick had found the key out of an existence of boring order. By pursuing the sciences, Patrick discovered a means to breathe fire into his own life. 
I was always a hands-on guy. I love to do things directly and be involved directly in things. And the problem was university, especially in Germany, is extremely theoretical. Especially in physics, the studies at the very beginning is like about so many things and foundations that I was absolutely not aware of that I have to basically um, um, go through and didn't want to go through. After the introduction courses, I'd say, no, I will absolutely not do this. But still driven from this passion for that, it was then clear, all right, I want to build the things that actually can go at least up there. And uh, this was basically the point where it decided to go into engineering. Patrick could feel the heat with engineering, striking great contrast to the theoretical physics that left him cold. These conjectural and abstract deep dives into physics didn't mesh with Patrick's heavy metal spirit. It was like he was stuck in the weeds of AP music theory when what he really wanted to do was get out there, jump on some cars, and headbang to some rock and roll. He longed to do something, to build. Enter engineering. It had all the fire-breathing qualities of physics, but with practical application added to give it that extra flair. In Germany, we have basically a little bit of a different university cluster. You have the normal universities and then you have like University for Applied Sciences, which is much more focused around actually application. I started there and something in my mind switched completely. And um, from that time onwards, I was driven by getting the best grades, sucking in everything around this kind of topic that you were enrolled in. And I was enrolled in chemical engineering. Within half a year, I was absolutely fascinated by everything regarding combustion, thermodynamics, aerodynamics. I tried to suck in everything around this topic, basically, because what this ultimately led to is that I wanted to really go into aerospace engineering and I wanted to build rockets. And this was basically this incredible switch inside of me and I was super motivated to become an aerospace engineer. The big difference for me in aerospace engineering was now I get the first time in my life the chance to actually build something which at least brings me closer to it. The uh, opportunity and the capacities to basically build things with which we are able to understand this crazy big universe um, a little bit better. Patrick found passion at an inflection point, a point where he began narrowing down his place in the universe. As a kid, he had all sorts of vectors, life opportunities that were presented to him both by his parents and by German society writ large. He didn't find any that appealed to him, but those were just salves for his middle class ennui. They did not define his purpose in the universe. Once he discovered science, he began charting along a path that felt right. The next step was distilling it down to engineering, even further down to a single point, combustion. His path to his place in the universe was becoming more clear. Let's take a minute to examine Patrick's trek thus far. Aside from his brief stint into rebellion, Patrick followed all of the checkpoints necessary for a life and career devoted to engineering. 
got his undergraduate degree, went on to grad school. After basically doing my undergraduates in Düsseldorf, I switched directly then with a scholarship to Munich. And enrolled in a PhD program. I really want to do this on a high professional level. There, again, I searched for the next challenge and basically was working in the field of theoretical aerodynamics. The whole nine yards, or meters, since we're in Germany. And while he still yearned for the destination, he was growing increasingly disenchanted with the journey, namely the academic journey. During my time as a PhD, I was never more frustrated because, again, having these expectations of, great, I can do great stuff, I can have a massive impact, etc., and basically get completely bodied by the reality, which is that academia is also a company and that it's not about research. It is absolutely not. It's about how you can um, drive as many journals, uh, journal papers as quickly as possible uh, and basically not take care of what truly matters for people, what, that, what does matter for society. As it became clear to Patrick that higher learning lived by churning out scientific journals rather than benefiting humankind, Patrick switched to a more fulfilling course, one filled with dead ends, loop-de-loops, and peaks in values. To hell with structure and straight lines, Patrick was back to rockin' and rollin'. Then after three years, when I was moving to Munich, I met Sebastian. Sebastian, then one of my co-founders at this time, told me, hey, you remember Daniel? He has this idea about this aircraft. There's this jet that we have in mind. It is electric. It has two seats. We can fly 400 plus kilometers. We can access directly into cities. It will be low noise, etc. And it can have an impact. And I saw out of the sun, there was like, I can have an impact again. I said, fuck it. I do it. Absolutely. I'm in. This is how it all uh, started. <laughs> Finally. Patrick felt that his life had purpose. Studying theoretical physics and producing journal entries for the academia machine didn't allow him to make an impact. It was all so abstract and to him, meaningless. Putting his head together with Sebastian and Daniel gave him a concrete vision, a jet barely humming by at hundreds of miles an hour. Patrick needed to make something in order to make an impact on the universe. And for Patrick, impact is everything. We are stardust. And this horizon of consciousness that we can create for ourselves is always the question, this is the little amount of time that I have. What do you do with this? How do you basically want to be remembered? This sounds massively arrogant, but what's a little bit in my mind is, hey, for the first time, I can do something that can last for decades by having positive impact on people living on this planet, how we can bring them closer together instead of separating them even more. Why do you feel a duty to the world? It's not that I have the duty to do this in the world, but much more I realized I can do it. And I think that the problem in society is why do people think they don't have it? People are way too conservative about the massive impact they can have in the world. And this is coming from chaos theory, and this is like the butterfly effect. The idea behind it is small things can have a massive impact in the future. And 
I think the problem we need to speak about is much more why people have in their perception. Why should I do it? I don't have an impact on this. This is the absolute wrong way how to look at your own capabilities because everybody has these kind of capabilities. If a butterfly fluttering its wings impacts the universe, then imagine the type of impact that Patrick could make. That impact had parameters. It needed to move the universe in the right direction help people. That way, his imprint would live long after he returns to Stardust. Patrick loves waxing philosophically. He loves ascribing cosmic significance to all of his actions. We see Hawking's view of the universe inform the way he thinks about everything. He understands that all of existence began at one infinitesimal point and then expanded. That something as small as a butterfly could be the first domino in an earth-shattering chain of reactions. A metalhead kid made of stardust from a working-class family had to start somewhere infinitesimally small before a supernova of success exploded. We were engineers, all four of us, uh, so we started with the technology. Can we make this possible? How can we prove that this kind of concept is feasible? And how to basically get the money in place to show on a big scale that this can work? Because one of the biggest learning also during this time was testing, testing, testing. Get it built, get it tested, and then learn from it, and then do it again. had no money. We were all in debt because we funded the company. Uh, We were sitting at Sebastian's old shared room flat and were basically building prototypes on the ground. For engineers, everybody minimum master degree, and we were coding, building simulation models on small wooden prototypes. What did it feel like working in those conditions? It was the best thing in my life. And I still speak with my co-founders today about this, that we want to do something like this again. I mean, let's be very honest. It is not like it is easy because you are already in debt. You need to pay bills and everything. You need to get freaking money to survive, to pay your ramen noodles. And on the other side, basically, you can only do this with wooden and small prototypes. And then you're literally sitting in front of a TV where you cut out aerodynamic profiles from the TV and glue them together. After weeks, you're tired as hell. You're hungry because you you, you don't have enough money to eat, basically. You bring this small wooden prototype in the air by basically throwing it and it's flying. And we were able to demonstrate on a small scale this kind of an initial idea of a blended body aerodynamics for vertical takeoff and landing jet can work. And for us, it was the world. This was how we started everything at the very beginning to basically get it up in the air very quick and dirty. That small wooden prototype taking flight proved Patrick's ambitions were possible. It may seem small, but as we and Patrick know, everything that becomes big starts out small. Like so many other founders, he says his small beginnings subsisting on ramen and a dwindling bank account were the best times of his life. When else do you get to start something completely new with nothing to lose? When else can the end of every day be a testament to how you surmounted what others thought was impossible? 
Patrick and the team were making progress on the impossible. The first thing when you decide you want to build an aircraft, everybody thinks you're crazy. I will not forget my father when I told him, hey, I will found this company. We want to build like air taxis. And he was like, oh, no, he has another crazy idea. What the hell? And for us, nobody was believing in you except before we were believing in ourselves as a team. Seeing this thing flying and that we did it for the first time to make something airborne was for us the absolute world at this place because it gave us the, the confidence. Okay, when we can do this, then the rest is uh, peanuts. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't, of course, it wasn't. It's interesting. I, I feel like your early days listening to heavy metal prepared you for the kind of flack that you would get from like society and your parents to say like, all right, you know what, I'm going to do this in the face of all that anyway. This is almost my attitude. I get more or much more into things like, hey, you, you cannot do it. All right, okay, I'll find a solution for this. It's helped at some point to be very resistant against uh, also failures. In true heavy metal fashion, Patrick has an indomitable spirit that runs roughshod over the naysayers. When he was younger, that spirit, the character that to this day propels him forward despite naysayers, got him in trouble. At the startup stage of life, it got him out of trouble and into success. His success was addictive. He disregarded everything else in his life to pursue this solitary vision, this impact. And it wasn't sustainable. One of the biggest hurdles was that my private life suffered massively from it. I lost a lot of friends. I lost two or three girlfriends. I wasn't stable from a mental health. I even had a breakdown. So it was in no way sustainable. We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie, I can help you. Hello, I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like... Could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You, you, want to, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right. So like like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I feel like I... It's I, just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Gotcha. Like, I like, mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, stuff like that. But to sit, to sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. 
I was always somebody who loved to work a lot, always more and more and more. But at this time where I was in the situation was the final six months of my PhD. Uh, everybody who's in this time knows that it's literally hell on earth. And um, then founding a company and basically focusing your future. What this led up to is that I was working for over a year on, on two different topics, this company and at the same time, this PhD thing and never sleeping more than three hours um, a night and just working, working, working. I was flying to a conference. We had also the opportunity to pitch for the, the company at an event where we would hopefully finally get investors. In the middle of the night, on the second day or third day in the workshop, I just started crying. I was just sobbing, crying, and uh, was completely at the end of my physical power. This ended up that I had to um, go out of the company uh, for three months to recover from this. Was there a specific trigger that was like, okay, like this is the breaking point? I don't think there was a very particular trigger. I think that there was just another topic being put on the plate. And so this basically just made the whole house of cards fall together. He was the definition of a workaholic. Due to his incessant need to be the best, he was pushing himself to the hilt both physically and mentally. He was so focused on achievement that he had become deaf to his psychological needs, and his psyche was paying the price. The quote-unquote more mentality that had made Patrick successful thus far was backfiring. Coupled with his introverted nature, Patrick's carefully bottled emotions were threatening to break through his defenses. Even though his heart was telling him to keep going, his mind and body were lagging behind. Luckily for Patrick, he had a supportive group of friends that reminded him the value of self-care. My co-founders are some of the most fantastic human beings that you can find in the world. And I think what makes us today so strong and gave me the strength I needed at this point was that they fully understood the situation as well. They were fully aware that health is the most important thing for every human being because you also want to spend the time that you have in a healthy manner on earth. So they were super supportive. They took over. They cared of me. They were asking how you're doing, etc. And so with that, I was able then to um, slowly but steady to recover. Obviously, the time off is important to recuperate, but I think it's also really great time for reflection. So when you did feel ready to come back, how were you going to change how you approached this project and this company? The difference was basically you don't have any idea anymore when you're in this stressful level what is urgent and important. The thing is you basically get in a super vicious circle in these kind of environments and you have no time to step back and look at it. What am I actually doing here? Is it the right thing? Is it for the right thing for the company or even for myself? And this is something when you just have much less on the plate, just a single topic that you can focus on, which was at this time only the company. This was the point where I was able to fully reflect, am I doing the right things? To move forward, Patrick needed to take a step back. He couldn't be the Lone Ranger fighting a losing battle any longer. 
He had to learn to acknowledge and accept his vulnerability and welcome support, to welcome empathy. Even the most introverted of us crave social interaction, and Patrick was no different. He realized that in order to be successful, he needed to learn to share the burden. As an engineer, he was no stranger to problem solving, but this time he needed to solve a more abstract problem. Himself. To be selfless, he needed to be selfish. He realized that to do what he loved, he had to first turn inward. In reflecting on himself and in stating a much needed balance to his life, Patrick could refocus his energies into doing what he truly loved working on his craft, his aircraft. Patrick was facing the German aerospace industry, an inflexible industry within a stringent country. He would get some pushback. When we started this and we were basically looking for investors, I don't know how many times, but we had like so many people saying, stop it, don't do it. We had one investor basically telling us, guys, literally stop wasting your time. You won't be successful. And you should stop very quickly because otherwise you won't get a job anymore because uh, they will see what you try to pull off. We are engineers and we know what we're building there and designing. We were top-notch in our fields. It is possible, otherwise we wouldn't have done it. Do not ban physics, uh, but as an engineer, you know how to apply physics very well. Let's be very honest, this kind of an approach, when you have been for decades in this kind of an environment, and not used to basically to see a mind shift basically and coming with a new idea. It is easy to for also to say, hey, don't do it. Others would have done it as well or would have done it already. When you understand we, we can make a change here and we can do something, we know the physics, we know the engineering behind it, then it is just another person who says you cannot do it. Yeah, you do it anyway, exactly. Do it anyway. Investor after investor told Patrick that his idea was destined for failure, and yet Patrick refused to believe them. It was Patrick's immunity to doubt that had made him a successful engineer and entrepreneur. Since the early days of listening to heavy metal, Patrick hasn't been afraid to show that he was different, a bit of an outsider. He did not conform to the norms of the aerospace industry or German society. He was going to jump on these investors' doubts in the same way he jumped on the Porsches years ago. He would prove these investors wrong. Determined to illustrate the feasibility of his project, he sought out to showcase his idea on a global scale. I knew the competition basically, and I was like, oh, cool, a big stage, big prize money as well. But for us, it was like also ultimately getting really in touch with the, the kind of companies that we want to work with. It was also interesting and uh, super important to see how are we basically perceived. So some of them knew at least, hey, there's this small startup in Germany who's doing these uh, eVTOL aircrafts. Some of them were really keen to understand what we actually were doing because there's not that kind of super startup-y culture in in, in Germany, especially not in these uh, aerospace companies. So they were pretty keen to understand what are we doing, how we're doing it, basically. And I think this was nice for us to have these uh, first touch points, actually, with the industry. 
Despite the air of uncertainty surrounding his idea, this competition allowed Patrick to solidify his confidence. If there was ever a shadow of a doubt, by now, it was obliterated. He knew his product was gaining traction, and that was all the reassurance he needed to proceed. And before too long, he launched his first prototype. What makes Eagle special is it was our first one-to-one prototype. It was also the physical demonstration that these kind of high lift concepts work. So you have um, an airplane that takes off vertically like a helicopter. But once it's in the air, it accelerates into forward flight and flies with wingborne lift. And this way it achieves much higher speeds than cars, but also higher speeds than a helicopter. So connectivity is what it's all about. This is why for us, it was internally as a company, on the one inside, a very important source for fundraising. This big journey that we're still having in front of us is actually something that we can achieve if we do the right things and uh, at the right time. We can build something. Defying the odds, Patrick was able to see his prototype, the Eagle, soar to success. He felt validated. He had proven those skeptical investors wrong, and the team proved to themselves that they could operate as an integrated unit. They had a clear trajectory, and the only thing needed now was to ramp up and accelerate. When I came back, we received our seed funding, basically, uh, from a very famous um, seed investor in Germany, who also participates in the German version of Shark Tank. I will also never forget what he told us. My heart says yes, my head says no. This is the moment where the first really big person and investor basically believed in us. And for us, it was not, oh, cool, money to spend. It was, wow, crazy, the responsibility which is now coming with this. And, oh, what do we do with this exactly? What's the smarter thing? And we focused then to ramp up the team in order to build a one-to-one scaled um, prototype of our two-seated aircraft. We grew quite quickly within a year to approximately in total 20 people. And it was a diverse bunch of people in terms of from structural engineering, um, propulsive engineering, uh, simulation methods, flight controls. So the the four core categories that you basically need um, in, in order to build an aircraft. Patrick was split. In the early days, engineering was his main focus. As they created a working prototype, he had to bounce between fundraising and engineering. But now, it was less important for him to engineer the aircraft and more important for him to build a company that could engineer this aircraft. He had to build a crew, not the craft. That's a tough transition. His whole life was centered around understanding the stars in the sky and the concepts of our universe. 
His proudest moments were when he ecstatically watched those wooden models soar through the air. He knew how to use the laws of physics to create an aircraft, but could he also understand the laws of human nature to build a team? The managerial aspect of running a startup is what stumped him. Having a proclivity for engineering wasn't enough. In order to see his aircraft take off, he needed to step out of his comfort zone. To basically build the company itself is the hardest part. For, for what we had in our mind was always this kind of democratized uh, mobility, affordable, accessible. And this is something that's not possible basically with a two-seated aircraft of what we were intending to build at this stage. So we are also pivoting away in terms of what is the technology that we were building. This was one of the first big switches inside of the company to make the whole company basically go into a different direction. I think there we really learned for the very first time how um, incredible, important and hard it is to build the company, but also set structures. What is the right kind of management for this kind of company? And recruiting is like one of the hardest things that you can have in building up a company. And summer 2017, it was like one of these um, classic seven days a week working times, which were fine per se. But the thing is, I realized for the first time that I was only doing engineering on the weekend. And uh, during the week, you were basically focusing on how to either support your team to manage, to find your own style, hiring, setting up structures, document structures. We were completely overwhelmed what actually is needed from an engineering uh, perspective. Then you basically do so many things and manage different things, um, team setups, uh, meetings, of course, meetings and meetings. Yeah, I think uh, this was the first time the realization where you really, wow, this is not in any way the best thing for the company. Am I doing here right now the right thing for the company? Or should you rather focus on giving the environment in which the work can be done by your team and uh, funding the right managers in order to take certain things over? The coolest thing around it is when you have the right people in the right place who are much smarter than you are. And seeing basically what they create and what you wouldn't be able to create in a thousand years. They can do it much faster, much smarter. Designing the environment in which this can happen is absolute magic. Becoming a leader often means giving away the very responsibilities to which your success is owed. Patrick's success had been fueled by his passion for engineering. He loved the process of creating and solving problems, but his team no longer needed another engineer. It needed a leader. He needed to trade his tools and blueprints for meetings and planning. Overcoming his initial discomfort, he knew ultimately this was a necessary sacrifice. It no longer was four founders against the world. There were people, investors, employees, and the world that would benefit from this technology who depended on his leadership to guide them. Making these changes, he saw immediate growth in team chemistry and consequently, fundraising. 
Yeah, in total, we are now speaking of approximately a little bit more than $370 million in investment. And I hope all founders are looking at this like, it is not your money. It is ultimately venture capital means that somebody trusts in your idea, your technology and your team uh, to build something over the years that's valued much higher than the, the money that we're currently pouring inside of this company. What kind of an unbelievable privilege it is to work with a fascinating team on an, such an amazing vision. And I think this is like what I take always out of these kind of monumental numbers. It is not the money per se, but what does it implicitly communicate? And um, for me, it is massive responsibility, but also this uh, massive trust and the privilege to have something that you work on, what you truly believe in. Money was merely a means for Patrick to pursue an altruistic mission. But how does he have this perspective? I think it's important to dwell on this idea of money for a moment. Starting from zero and accruing $370 million worth of investment is incredible and dangerous. That kind of money can corrupt. A cannibalistic logic could invade saying, I'm a success because I made money and I made money because I made the right decisions. And these are the right decisions because I made money. You start to blindly believe, even worship that money. Ego grows and takes over. It clouds judgment. Somehow, Patrick escaped this logic. He remains level-headed. Even in this interview, he's reserved, humble, almost bashful. I think this is because he's remained focused on his original mission, impacting people positively through technology. He cultivated purpose over profit. Because of this, Lilium is close to materializing that initial mission. Can you briefly describe what a world with air taxis looks like to you? When you talk with people about flying taxis, they have always this kind of, an, oh my God, it's um, flying directly over my head. It will fall down. It will cause chaos. Basically, this is not even closely how reality will be. I hope we come also to the point, less rush hour, less congested places, the air quality is improving. People having the opportunity to, to, to travel the same kilometers they, they normally do much faster or increase basically their daily action radius by a significant amount will ultimately lead to the fact that um, you decongest city centers. We expect to be on the market in multiple countries in 2025. What Patrick imagines takes me back to the butterfly effect. Yes, Cilium's inventions initially conjure up a crazy world full of flying cars and personal robots. It takes me back to that Jetsons 1960s optimistic vision of the future. But this isn't a novelty. If you listen to what Patrick said, there's a cascading effect across millions of people. This is the far-reaching impact that Patrick dreamed of as a child. I was curious, what advice does he have for someone who wants to pursue this impact, pursue the life of an entrepreneur? Do not listen to people who think they have better vision or mission of your idea. It's your idea, it is your mission, and it's your vision. 
And a big problem is that especially investors often try to bring young entrepreneurs with great ideas into a direction which is eventually faster profitable, but basically do, does not lead to the mission and vision that the, the entrepreneur and the founder has in, in their mind. Growing up in the average town of Dusseldorf, it seemed that Patrick was destined to be another ordinary butterfly, whose only mark was a short-lived existence. Fortunately, that was not the case. Patrick was rebel, a heavy metal-loving, aircrafting-building entrepreneur, to be exact. An average boy with big dreams, he has shown the world how hard work and passion can lead to success. Every entrepreneur has their own unique journey, but I think Patrick's was a breath of fresh air. Coming from engineering roots with a streak for introversion, it seemed that he did not fit the typical entrepreneurial mold. Seeing as Patrick has a habit for doing the unconventional, it is unsurprising that his entrepreneurial endeavors aligned with his societal defiance. Despite the massive success he has achieved, he remains a humble and down-to-earth individual whose sole focus is to better society through his technology. His desire is to be a beacon of light, to truly inspire others to be better, to do better. According to Patrick, we are all stardust meant to disappear in the abyss after a short span of time on this planet. But even when our bodies decay, our impact on the world remains. And that, that's Patrick's goal, to make a lasting change that lives long after our last breath. So think about the future of the world and what you want that world to look like. And think about the impact you can create right now to make that world a reality. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.